Amen. All right. Good morning. And it was it was uh, fun and interesting to be on this side uh, to watch baptism. Um, this is the first time I've gotten to do that in, in quite a while, and what a blessing it is um, to to witness uh, this symbol of the new life that is given to us in Christ Jesus, uh, and to rejoice with these uh, children and with their families, and to, to commit to walk alongside them. Do you have your Bibles with you this morning? All right, 1 Peter chapter 2 is where we're at. 1 Peter chapter 2 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible with you, I hope that you'll get close to someone who does have a Bible so you can follow along as we study God's Word together. Last week, we finally moved into chapter 2 of our study of 1 Peter. That is proof that we are indeed making progress in this study. It is also proof that we are not moving quickly. Um, But we know that there's no need to be in a hurry in this study um, because what's coming next is 2 Peter. Um, So we're just going to keep moving along. God has shown us a lot already. Uh, We only want to see more of what he would say to us. Last week's text in particular was super helpful for us. It was really practical. And it affirmed some things that we really hold dear here at First Baptist Church. We saw the singular imperative in the text last week in verses 1 to 3 is this command to long for the pure milk of the word. And we should long for the pure milk of the word like a newborn baby longs for its mother's milk. And I told you, if we find that that longing is lacking in us, there are a few things we should do. Uh, To be obedient to this command, there are a few things we should do. Number one, we should pray. We should pray because if God commands something, he will empower obedience to it. He's not going to leave us to our own devices, to our own power, to be obedient to his word. So we ask for his help. We say, Lord, give me a longing for your word. We pray and we ask for his help. Number two, we taste. We taste the word of God. We drink it. We meditate on it, we read it, we memorize it, we hear it preached, we drink and drink and drink, and that will help establish a longing for his word. We cannot expect to have a longing for something that we have never tasted in the first place, and so we must drink of his word. Number three, I told you that we should share. We should talk about God's word, because we know that when we taste something good, we want to share it with other people, and when we know that someone else has tasted something good, we want to taste that ourselves. And so we should be sharing with one another what we are reading, what we are hearing in God's word. And then finally, I told you that if we're going to pursue this longing, we've got to fight because the enemy does not want us to long for the pure milk of God's word. And he will whisper all kinds of excuses into our ears. He will tell us that it's too complicated. It's too difficult to understand the scriptures. And so you need to just stay away from it. He will tell us that we're too busy to drink from God's word. We've got too many other things going on that require our attention to spend significant time in God's word. He will tell us that we can do without it when the truth is we cannot live apart from God's word. Jesus himself says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We require God's word for our lives. And as we drink this pure milk of God's word, we will grow. And that is the goal of the Christian life. That's the expectation of the Christian life. We tend to think, often in the church, that growth is optional, that rebirth is the point. Well, rebirth is the beginning of the journey of growth in discipleship, right? Growth in discipleship is not optional. It is expected. It is required, in fact. God does not just bring us to life to leave us as we are. He brings us to life to conform us to the image of Christ, to grow us in Christ-likeness and godliness in maturity. Growth is essential for the Christian, and we pursue it through God's Word. And the big question that we talked about last week was, have you tasted the kindness of the Lord? Have you tasted the goodness of God in his word? Have you tasted this glorious gospel truth that he would take the one who deserves only his wrath because of their sin, he would take the one who deserves only judgment and punishment for all of eternity, and rather than punish them forever, 
he would forgive them. He would adopt them into his own family as his beloved child, no longer as an enemy, as a friend and as a beloved child. And he would do all of this by sending his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for our sins in the place of us sinners. There's nothing that tastes better than that, my friends. Have you tasted the goodness of God? Repent of your sins. Trust in Christ today. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Well, this week in our study of 1 Peter, we're going to look at more verses than we're used to, but they're all going to work together. Basically, what Peter's going to do in the verses that we'll look at today is he's going to lay out some principles in verses 4 and 5. He's going to make an argument in verses 4 and 5, and then in verses 6 through 10, he's going to defend and support that argument using Old Testament texts. So that, at the end of the day, we're left with little doubt as to our identity in Christ and our purpose as his people. United with Christ by faith, we become living stones, a spiritual house, the text says, a royal priesthood to offer sacrifices, spiritual sacrifices unto the Lord. And like Christ, we will be rejected by men, but we must remember that we are chosen by God and we are precious to him. Read the text with me, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 4, we're going to study through verse 10 today. This is God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we are grateful to be here today, grateful to celebrate these baptisms together once again, grateful to sing your praises together once again, grateful to proclaim your excellencies once again, for you are the most excellent one. You are the only true and living God. You are the one who created all that exists, and you are the one who upholds it by your power. You are the one who has called us out of darkness and into marvelous light. We who were once not a people and had not received mercy, now, because of your grace alone, we are your people who have received mercy. And so we praise your name now and forevermore. But Father, there are others among us who still walk in darkness. They still live apart from your grace and your mercy. They are rejecting Christ. Father, only you can rescue them. Only you can change them. And so we ask that you would call them out today. Open their eyes today. Change their hearts today, just as you did for us. Would you show them great mercy as well, for their good eternally and for your glory eternally. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Amen. 
All right, so like I told you, in verses 4 and 5, Peter lays out the argument, and then in verses 6 to 10, he supports and, and lays the foundation of that argument from the Scripture. So look at verses 4 and 5 with me. It says, "...in coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ." There are seven big truths that we need to see in these verses. I'm going to lay out those seven big truths. And once we have seen these seven truths, we're going to drive them home with those Old Testament passages in verses 6 through 10. Big truth number one, Jesus is a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. It is super interesting to me that Peter jumps just all over the place from one metaphor to another without any segue. Like last week he was talking about babies drinking mother's milk, and this week he's talking about architecture and building uh, buildings with stones. It's especially interesting that he uses the word stone here as the image, since his name was changed by Jesus to a word for rock. But Peter isn't using his name word here, lest there be any confusion that he might be talking about himself like you come to the living rock. It's not at all what he's saying. He is clearly referring to Jesus. He's not talking about himself here. Rather, all the focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the building stone. In fact, he is the chief cornerstone we will see in the text a little bit later. And notice in this first bit of the text that he describes Jesus as a living stone, a stone that is living. And this is the most interesting part. And this is connected directly to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his resurrection, Jesus is not described as an inanimate stone with no life, nor is he described as a dead man with no life. No, rather, Jesus is living, breathing. He is the living, breathing cornerstone. Friends, Jesus is alive. He has died, but he lives forevermore. That's what he says of himself in Revelation chapter 17. As he introduces himself to John in his glorified state, He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Big idea number one from the text, Jesus is a living stone. Number two, Jesus has been rejected by man. Jesus has been rejected by man. If Jesus as the living stone is a reference to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus as the rejected stone is a reference to his suffering and his death. Specifically, his death on the cross in our place for our sins. It's really a sad truth to consider that the long-awaited, much-anticipated, promised Messiah, who's been longed for and expected for generations upon generations, he came to his people and they did not receive him. He came to his people and they rejected him. Those religious leaders who prided themselves on knowing God's word missed God's word as it dwelt among them, missed him completely. And although he said and did a million things that proved he was the promised one, they rejected him and they crucified him. One scholar noted that this word for rejected here means to reject after examining or testing. It's not to merely catch a glimpse of something and reject it. It's to look closely at something and then reject it. It's what those religious leaders in the first century did. But friends, make no mistake, it was not just first century Jewish leaders who rejected Jesus. Millions, indeed billions of people do that today. In fact, I am confident that there are some in this room who are rejecting Jesus even now. You've seen it. 
You've gotten a glimpse of him. You've heard about him. And you have rejected him. But look, man's rejection of Jesus does not define who he really is. Jesus is a living stone. Jesus has been rejected by man. But big idea number three from this text is that Jesus is choice and precious in the sight of God. He is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Peter knew this perhaps better than anyone else. Having heard the Father testify to this audibly on two different occasions. We think back to the baptism of Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 verse 9 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens and said, You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. The father speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ and says, You are my son and in you I am well pleased. We also hear this same thing from the father at the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus. Read about that in Matthew chapter 17 with me. It says, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter... And James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with them. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. And Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. And lifting up their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. So twice, Peter heard the Father affirm Jesus as the beloved Son and express his delight in him. R.C. Sproul says, What is odious to us in our fallen condition is considered precious by God himself. In big idea number two, I told you that Jesus was rejected by men. Big idea number three is that Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. And this is a theme of Peter's ministry. It was a part of his earliest preaching, in fact, this idea that though he has been rejected by men, he is precious, he is important, he is chosen. Listen to Peter preaching in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus was rejected by man, but he is chosen, and he is precious in the sight of God. He is a stone that was rejected, but is the chief cornerstone. And Peter preached that. And oh, how much encouragement this must have been to these chosen exiles who are scattered throughout Asia Minor to whom Peter is writing this letter. He is saying to them, they are despised. They are also chosen, just like Jesus. And they will be vindicated in the end, just like Jesus. Men may reject the Lord Jesus Christ, but he is still choice and precious. He is the living stone. Big idea number four. When we come to Jesus in faith, we are united with him. 
He starts out this text that we're looking at and coming to him as to a living stone. This idea of coming to Jesus equals trusting in Jesus, equals believing in Jesus. Jesus says it this way in John chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to the people, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And then look what he says right after this. And he who believes in me will never thirst. There are several times in scripture where Jesus equates coming to him with believing in him. That is to come to Jesus means to trust in Jesus. And when we trust in Jesus, we are united with Jesus. In our union with him, in our union with him, we experience the things that he experienced. Edmund Clowney said, we are united to Christ. The living stones are joined to the cornerstone. And we read about this in scripture in Ephesians chapter 2. We talk about Ephesians chapter 2 quite a bit in this room. And we usually look at verses 1 through 10. This, this glorious statement about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved, right? We usually talk about that part, but I want to pick up in verse 11 today and talk about how coming to Jesus unites us with Jesus. We are on the outside, but we are brought in and we are connected with him. Look at it in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We are united with the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And being united with him means that what is true of him is true of us in him. With him, we will be rejected by men. And with him, we are precious and chosen by God. So there is this invitation. There is this invitation that is implicit in the text that we would come to Jesus. That we would come to Jesus and trust in him. Jesus gives that invitation in Matthew chapter 11. When he says to the crowd, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. All all friends, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and be united with him by faith. Come to Jesus trusting in him and be connected with him by faith. Big idea number five in this text, that in him... We are brought together as a spiritual house. By faith in Christ, we are not only united with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are united with each other. We are brought together as a spiritual house. Edmund Clowney, again, nails it when he says, church fellowship is not an optional advantage to be chosen or ignored, like membership in a social club. It is the calling of every Christian. There is a spiritual ethnicity to the church of Christ. I love this last line. He says, Christians are blood relatives joined by the blood of Jesus Christ. When we come to Jesus, we are united with him by faith. And when we are united to him by faith, we are also united to all of his people by faith. And this is most clearly experienced within the context of a local church like First Baptist Church of Harrisburg. We're not meant to live alone. We are meant to be brought together as the body of Christ in the local church. Big idea number five, in him we are brought together as a spiritual house. Number six, in him we are a royal priesthood. 
Man, there, there is much more here that I would love to say, but we don't really have time to say it. But in Christ, if we are in Christ, if we are united with him by faith, we are a royal priesthood. In other words, the access that was restricted to only the priests in the Old Covenant, the access to the presence of God behind the veil in the Holy of Holies, the access to the presence of God is ours. In the Old Covenant, one man once a year and then not without blood could go into the presence of God. And he did it with fear and trembling that he would mess something up and be stricken down as a result. But we know that when Christ died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That access to the presence of God was made available through the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have access to the Father. We become priests. We have the privilege of access to God as priests. But we also have the responsibility. We have the responsibility of leading people in worship like priests did. And we're going to see that later in the second part of the text. We're going to see that we have the responsibility to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. We have the responsibility. It's not just a privilege that we have access to God. It is a responsibility to proclaim his excellencies to the world around us, just like the priest. We have privilege and responsibility. In him, we are a royal priesthood. That was number six. And number seven, finally, through him, we offer sacrifices to God. We've already talked about this a little bit. As priests, we offer sacrifices. But unlike the priests of the old covenant, our sacrifices are spiritual in nature. We are not called to sacrifice bulls and goats to spill blood and let it run out of this place. No, no, no. Our sacrifices are spiritual, like we read about in Romans chapter 12. In verse 1, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Brothers and sisters, the sacrifice that we offer to God, the spiritual sacrifice that we offer to God is our lives. It is our entire lives offered to him in worship. So let's review these seven points. Seven things we saw in the first bit of the text. Number one, Jesus is a living stone. Number two, Jesus has been rejected by man. Number three, Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. Number four, when we come to Jesus in faith, we are united with him. Number five, in him, we are brought together as a spiritual house. Number six, in him, we are a royal priesthood. And number seven, through him, we offer sacrifices to God. Now look with me at verse six. After Peter lays all of that out, he says then in verse six, for this is contained in scripture. For this is contained in scripture. Peter lays out these principles and then he turns to the pure milk of the word of God to serve as his foundation for saying these things. In other words, those seven ideas are not new ideas. They should not be a surprise. They are contained within the scriptures. Notice the scriptures that he cites in verse 6 and 7. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe. This is a citation of Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16. Peter is taking Isaiah 28, 16, which speaks of Jesus as the cornerstone, the precious and chosen stone. This is the same truth that we saw in the earlier verses. Same truth number one, Jesus is a living stone. Truth number three, Jesus is chosen and precious in the sight of God. We know that a cornerstone of any building is the most important stone. 
The cornerstone of any building is the most important stone. It is the one by which all the other stones in the building are aligned. And that cornerstone is carefully chosen. It is carefully prepared. And it is carefully placed. One might even say that the whole building, the whole building depends upon the cornerstone. And so it is with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is most important. And everything, everything depends on him. Peter connects this verse with point one and point three and also point four, the importance of believing in him. When we come to Jesus in faith, we are united with him. And I thought Joe, Pastor Joe did a great job last night when he was talking to the teenagers at Disciple Now about faith, namely saving faith, namely that saving faith is much more than merely agreeing with the facts about Jesus. It's even more than agreeing with the fact that Jesus could save us. Biblical faith, saving faith, is actual trust in Jesus to save us. Biblical faith is resting our entire weight on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's much more than, our, as our friend in Central Asia says, it's much more than looking at a bridge and saying, that's a bridge. It's even more than saying, I believe that bridge would hold me if I were to walk on it. Saving faith is walking across the bridge. Trusting that the bridge will hold you up. Trusting that the bridge won't give way when you're in the middle. And this truth would have been super helpful to those who are marginalized and ridiculed like Peter's original audience. Even persecuted by the people around them. It may seem like they're losing now. But it won't always be like this. Peter says, you will not be disappointed. You will be vindicated in the end. The bridge will not give way when you are in the middle. Notice in the text that he says Jesus is precious to us who believe as well. The world might think differently about Jesus. The world might say, ah, Jesus was a good teacher. Ah, Jesus was a revolutionary. Ah, Jesus was a kind and gentle man. The world may say Jesus was a liar. They may say Jesus was a lunatic. But we say Jesus is our greatest treasure. Jesus is the Lord of our lives. The word precious here means valuable, invaluable even. Not cute, not cuddly, but valuable. Friends, Jesus must be our greatest treasure. Read on. In, in the middle of verse 7 it says, But for those who disbelieved, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. Here Peter is bringing out from the Old Testament, Psalm 118, verse 22, and Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14. And he's doing this to contrast the perspective of the lost world with the perspective of the church. And we see multiple principles that we've been talking about, multiple of these seven principles. We see number one, Jesus is a living stone. We see number three, but mostly in this verse we see number two. And we get more detail about what that rejection looks like. And we learn that this rejection of Jesus is mainly about unbelief, which is described here as disobedience to the word. Disobedience to the word equals unbelief, which directly contrasts what we saw a few weeks ago in the text about our conversion. In verse 1, in chapter 1, verse 22, talks about us being obedient to the truth and purifying our souls. In chapter 1, verse 2, it says that we are sprinkled with his blood to obey Jesus Christ. 
And we talked about how that obedience, the obedience that we're talking about in those verses is faith. Faith is the obedience to the command of the gospel to repent and believe. Therefore, if obedience looks like faith, then disobedience looks like unbelief, right? Unbelief is the epitome of disobedience. Unbelief is rejection of Jesus. This is what I want you to get. Unbelief is rejection of Jesus. And so I want to ask you, have you come to Jesus? Have you been united with him by faith? Or have you rejected Jesus? In your unbelief, are you separated from him outside? Do you believe in Jesus or not? Have you embraced Jesus or are you rejecting him? That's the question that we need to wrestle with today. The good news is, all of us who believe in Jesus, all of us who have accepted Jesus, all of us who are trusting in Jesus, all of us who are on the inside with Jesus, were once on the outside. And so if you find yourself on the outside today, there is hope for you. There is hope for you in the invitation that Jesus offers. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me and drink of this water, of this living water, Jesus says. So I invite you to come to Jesus. He will welcome you with open arms. If you trust in him and repent of your sins, he will save you. I'm certain of that. Now, before we move on out of this, we need to deal quickly with this phrase in the text that says, to this doom, they were appointed. Like the, the wimp in me wants to just skip over that and, and act like it's not there. And there's so much in the text today that we could do that and you probably wouldn't have even noticed. But it's there in the text. To this doom, they were appointed. Tom Schreiner notes of that phrase. He said, Peter adds a provocative comment, which he does not elaborate on, to conclude his comments about the disobedience. They were destined for this, he says. I want us to deal with that a little bit today because it's in the text. We don't want to just skip over things that are in the text. I want us to affirm that the Bible teaches that God is sovereign. I want us to affirm in this room that the Bible teaches that God is in control of all things. All things. And if we cannot affirm that, we will put ourselves in a really bad spot. Because if he's not in control of all things, who is? Who is in control? He is sovereign. One scholar says he is sovereign and controls all things from the decisions made by kings to the throw of the dice, we read in Proverbs. Even the cruelest and most vicious act in history, the execution of the Lord Jesus Christ, was predestined by God, Peter says in Acts chapter 2. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign completely. And the Bible also teaches, and I want us to affirm that in this room, the Bible teaches that man is responsible. The Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign. And the Bible teaches that man is responsible. One scholar says biblical writers never exempt human beings from responsibility. Their choices are authentic, even though they believe God ordains all things. Now, sometimes those two truths are held in tension. Sometimes those two truths rub against each other in my mind. How, how can God be completely sovereign over all things and man be, so, be, be responsible for his decisions and for his actions? Sometimes holding those two things creates some tension and friction in my mind. But we've got to hold those two things. We, we can't jettison one to embrace the other because the Bible teaches both of those things. And if the Bible teaches us, we want to embrace it, right? 
We, we don't want to come to the Bible and say, ooh, I like this idea, I don't like that idea, so I'll take this and I'll leave that. We don't get to come to the Bible with that kind of posture, do we? No, we come to the Bible and we say, it's right. It's right, and I'll embrace it all. And the Bible teaches that God is completely sovereign and that man is responsible. And what I love is that biblical authors don't seem to have a problem saying that. And in fact, Jesus in, in John chapter 6 has no problem saying it right around a text that I quoted just a little while ago. He says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And of those who come to me, I will lose none of them. Man. And at the same time, he's inviting people to come to him. All that the Father gives me will come. Come to me, he says. God is sovereign and man is responsible. And we believe that because the Bible says it. Now, after elaborating on those who reject Jesus in unbelief, Peter wraps up this section by reminding those who do believe, us who do believe, about their new identity in Christ. And this is not limited to the recipients of the letter in the first century. This applies to all who trust in Christ, all who come to him, even us. Look at verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Brothers and sisters, if you are trusting in Christ, if you are in Christ, if you are united to him by faith, let's rejoice over this. This is good milk, right? This is really good milk that we should taste and delight in. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are God's own possession. Some of your translation says we are God's own special possession. We are God's own treasured possession. He loves us. He delights in us as his people. Cherish this, taste this, savor this, that he has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. He has called us effectually and powerfully. He has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Savor this for a minute. We were once not a people. Like really, most of us in this room were seriously not a people because we come from a Gentile background. We were not in any way connected to the covenants before Jesus Christ. Most of us cannot trace our descendancy to Abraham. We were totally disconnected. We were once not a people, and now what are we? We are the people of God, the chosen people of God in Christ Jesus. That tastes good, doesn't it? We who once had not received mercy have now received mercy. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, let's delight in that. And as you delight in it, as you meditate on it today, and even as we leave this place, I want you to notice two things in particular from this part of the text. Notice the plural nature of everything that's going on. Everything that's going on here is not individual. It, not, it doesn't say you are a chosen person. It says y'all are a chosen race. Y'all are a royal priesthood. Y'all are a holy nation, a people, not a person, but a people for God's own possession. That hints at what we talked about in number five. In him, we are brought together as a spiritual house. We are a community of faith. These things are not just true of us as individuals. They are true of us, maybe even to a greater extent, they are true of us when we are together. Because this new life that we are given in Christ is best experienced in community. We are designed to live this new life together. Notice the plural nature of all this, and notice that there's purpose in all of it. There's one part that I skipped as we were talking about this. There's a phrase right in the middle 
so that, so that, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Why are we a chosen race? Why are we a royal priesthood? Why are we a people for his own possession? So that we can proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. So that we will proclaim. This is the sacrifice that we offer as priests. Look at Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 with me. It says, through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. We proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us in worship. That's why we sing. That's why we sing a minute ago. Sometimes I, sometimes I get frustrated by that song because it just keeps saying, you are good, you are good, you are good. Oh, you're good, you're good, you're good. Oh, like I like get it. He's good, he's good. I don't want to get frustrated with that song anymore. I want to delight in that song because it is proclaiming the excellencies of him who's called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Because he is good. He's good. He's good. No, it's oh, that's where you're supposed to go. Oh. Right? He is good. And we proclaim that to him in worship. That's what worship is. It is proclaiming the excellencies of him to him. We should basically tell him how great he is. And he loves it. He loves it because if we, if we say to someone else how great they are, he'd be jealous because they don't deserve that. Only he deserves to know how great he is because he's the greatest one. We proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us in worship, and we proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us in our evangelism. That's what we do when we go around the world or when we go to our neighbors. We don't just tell them some truths. We tell them about the glory of God in Christ Jesus. We tell them about the hope that can be theirs in Christ Jesus to the glory of God. That's why I love when our friend in Central Asia says, God save them for their eternal good and for your eternal glory. Because what is at stake is not just whether you will go to heaven or hell. It's whether God will be glorified in your life or not. We proclaim his excellencies in worship. We proclaim his excellencies in evangelism. And I'm convinced that worship is evangelism. In fact, I think there are some of you in here today who are, who are on the outside. You, you like came in for some reason, maybe, maybe, maybe a friend of yours is getting baptized and you just got, got guilted in to coming to this thing. Or, or you're like, I just want to go to lunch afterwards. And, and you're here because of that. Maybe, maybe that is the case. And you heard the rest of us proclaiming the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into marvelous light. And you're thinking, maybe he could do the same to me. I, I, I'm in darkness and I want to, be, I want to come out. I want to come out of the darkness into the light. Maybe by our worship, you have been brought in to the kingdom. I think, I think worship is evangelism. Edmund Clowney thinks so when he says this. This is the best line I read. He says, our hallelujahs don't in, do indeed join the anthems of the heavenly host. But here on earth, they're also heard by our neighbors. Your, your neighbors know about your grandbaby. Your, your neighbors know uh, about your new recipe. Your neighbors know about your new car or your team who won the championship. Your neighbors know about those things because you talk about them all the time. You lift them up. You speak of their excellencies. Oh, friends, let's speak of the excellencies of the one who's called us out of darkness into light. We are united by Christ in faith. And when we are, we become living stones. We become a spiritual house, a royal priesthood. And we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Like Christ, we will be rejected by men. But we must remember... Even in the rejection that we receive from men, we are chosen by God.
and we are precious to him. My question for you is, have you come to Jesus? Have you come to Jesus in faith? Have you come to Jesus in obedience to the command of the gospel to repent and believe? I want you to hear that today. Jesus commands all men everywhere to repent of their sins and believe in him. And you will either in this moment be obedient to that command and come to Jesus in faith and be saved or you will be disobedient to that command. You will reject Jesus and you'll be lost, at least for now. What will it be? Embrace Jesus or reject him? I hope you'll embrace him. Number two, brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are trusting in Jesus, we must remember who we are. We are who God says we are. Even if the world says something different, even if the world says we are closed-minded, backwoods, simple, God says we are a chosen race, royal priesthood, treasured possession of his. Remember what the Lord says about you. Remember what the Lord says about us. And remember that we will not be disappointed if we go on trusting in Jesus. Even if they kill us, we will not be disappointed if we go on trusting in Jesus. And number three, let's proclaim his excellencies. Let's do it now. Like, let's sing about his greatness. Let's sing about his goodness. Let's proclaim his excellencies in worship. And let's proclaim his excellencies as we leave this place in evangelism. Let's stand together and pray. Oh, Father, thank you for time together. Thank you for your word. This was a lot. This was a lot today. We pray that you will help us to hold on to everything that was right and true. Let go of everything that was fleshly. Pray for your people that we will be busy proclaiming your excellencies to the world around us. That we will do it even now as we worship you. And I pray for those who are on the outside. I pray that in the same way you went after us, you would go after them. In the same way that you opened our eyes to your holiness and your righteousness, you opened our eyes to our sinfulness and our rebellion. You taught us that because you are holy and we are sinful, we deserve nothing but judgment from you. I pray that you would teach them that as well. Oh, and in the same way that you opened our eyes to the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ who died in our place, pray that you'll open their eyes to that too. Let them see Jesus taking their sin upon himself. Let them see Jesus dying in their place. Let them see Jesus rising in victory over sin and death and hell that they deserve. And Father, we pray that you will grant them faith to trust in Jesus Christ. Grant them repentance to turn away from their sin. Grant them salvation. Call them out of darkness into your marvelous light for their good and for your eternal glory. We pray this in Christ's name.